Tonight I want to speak about the possibility of opening to inner contentment. Last night I mentioned that this practice has come to us from the Buddhism of Asia and that the word Buddha actually translates as one who is awakened. And to me that speaks to the whole purpose, the whole reason that I and hopefully all of us engage in this form of practice at all is in order for ourselves to awaken. To awaken to the fact that deep, lasting inner contentment, peace, happiness is available to us here and now in whatever particular situation we might find ourselves. That the possibility exists in any moment that we can awaken to our true nature and come to recognize it more fully and rest here more completely. I'm sure that's what your experience today has been like. <laughs> and that's what the, the mind tends to throw up. You know, how, for God's sake, does sitting here and you know, trying to find one breath in a hundred and feeling pain, what has that got to do with contentment or peace? Vipassana, which is what, what we call this practice, Vipassana actually means to see into, to see clearly. So in, in the actual form, the technique that we're cultivating, we're not cultivating the technique as some end in itself, to become a perfect breather or a perfect walker or the perfect ability to label every arising experience. I mean, that's not the point. Vipassana means seeing into What is true about our experience here and now? Seeing clearly. And in seeing clearly whatever's arising, what we'll begin to see, you can't help but begin to awaken to fact, to what is true. And what we begin to see that as difficult as our experience might have been today, or tomorrow, or any other day, that the one of the main reasons we are not recognizing the potential for deep inner contentment right now in this experience is a lot to do with our assumptions about what happiness is, about what peace is. And we, until we really look, until we really see into what is true without prejudice, which is what the quality of mindfulness lets us learn how to do, through inquiry, when we begin to look deeply, then we begin to see that it's not the experience that's blocking peace, it's our assumptions that keep us looking in the wrong direction. Our inquiry, not a thinking inquiry, the simple inquiry of mindfulness, of this moment's experience, will begin to first let us see the assumption that is very common in our culture. I don't 
want to speak for everybody and say this is your assumption, but it's certainly been mine, that happiness or contentment or peace, whatever word you want to use, has to do with having all the circumstances in my life right. Basically, there should be no unpleasant experience going on, or at most, it should be very minimal. And that to come to inner contentment is either some kind of state where everything is sort of under control, or um, in some altered ecstatic state of bliss. And it might sound funny, but really looking at our own assumptions, what is it that keeps us looking in the wrong direction? Based on these assumptions, one of the things we begin to see about how the mind works as we sit here, and if you haven't heard this, if you've heard this talked about, you've heard it talked about a lot. And if you hadn't, You've seen it over and over, but you just might not have thought of it in this way, is that based on the assumption of whatever it is that we're looking for that will mean contentment or peace or happiness or nibbana or whatever word you use, it's, it's often the underlying assumption that leads to a certain habit of mind, a certain way that our mind responds to situation that keeps us confused. And that's sort of the assumption that any pleasant experience is good and to be desired. Any unpleasant or painful experience is bad. It's a mistake. Get away as fast as possible. Neutral experience. A lot of times they say, what's a neutral experience? Because we don't even notice it. And so the habit of mind, when I talk about a pleasant or unpleasant, I mean in any of our sense experiences, seeing a pleasant sight, the lilacs that you see, and there's this, ah, isn't that nice? And the sense of wanting arises in response to that experience. I don't want to go inside. I want to stay outside longer and see the beautiful lilacs or smell the beautiful lilacs or hear the sweetness of the birds singing, you know, or taste some more of this lunch, or feel some more of the pleasantness of the wind on my face, I'm not going to go sit this time. Or think again, this really pleasant thought. The thought of your vacation comes up, ah, so pleasant. At least the first hundred times it's pleasant. (laughs) And the, the tendency is to keep going. When pleasant comes up, the habit of mind is to want more, to crave, to go towards it. And when it's unpleasant, it's just the reverse. Your body's hurting in the sitting, and it's not a pain that, that signals that you're hurting yourself. It's just a hurt, a painful sensation. And all our training is, this is bad, this is wrong, do anything to avoid it. Similar with emotional pain, similar with just mildly unpleasant visual experiences or hearing. Someone next to you keeps coughing and the scenarios we can go through of how to throw them out, how to move our seat, how to write a note that this person should obviously be secluded or whatever. (laughs) Someone just called me up from another retreat somewhere 
else in the country with some Burmese teachers. And he said, you know, this guy came late and he was coughing and breathing loud and had a respiratory ailment so he couldn't be told to shut up. And they literally wanted to seclude this guy away from the whole rest of the people. And, you know, what is it? It's a, it's a sound. It's unpleasant. That's all. Neutral. The breath is often neutral. Why do you think we find it so boring sometimes? Because our habit with neutral is let's generate a little interest. If we can go for pleasant, that's preferable, but, but watch yourselves. As often as not, the mind will reach for a really unpleasant fantasy rather than be with a neutral experience. This is just our habits of mind. There's not a blame about it, but it's so deeply conditioned in that we often don't notice it, or if we do notice it, we think, you might be thinking, now, well, of course. I mean, who wouldn't want to go for what's pleasant? Who wouldn't want to avoid what's unpleasant? That's just sensible. So what's the point? And it's true if we have the choice. But how many of you would be here if you could work it so that you only had pleasant experiences in your life? If that was happiness and you could arrange it, I bet you anything you wouldn't be sitting and walking here for three days, for 14 hours a day, or whatever it is. Something about this conditioning of the mind, this habit of how we relate to experience, doesn't work. It isn't bringing us happiness. And this is what we begin to see when we begin to relate to our experiences with mindfulness. What these habits tend to do is to solidify our sense of separation from what is true, from each other, from the world, or from contentment. The habits keep us looking towards the next pleasant thing, or when can I get away from this unpleasant experience? Then I'll be happy. Then peace will be available. Then I can meditate then I'll be more spacious. Whatever. There's always another carrot. And because this is endless, and because until we stop and inquire, not through thinking, but through our moment-to-moment being with what is, until we stop and inquire, we don't really see what's going on. And we keep thinking that peace is elsewhere, that I somehow have to be different before I can recognize true contentment, before things can change. And so these habits are very deep and ingrained, very subtle. And I could really talk a long time about how subtle they are. In in a way, just a, a simple example, they're so subtle that it even can distort what we actually perceive. For example, when... Desire is very strong. Say you're hungry, but not just a normal hunger and you go eat, but that kind of craving, for example, for, a, say, a pizza. And you're walking down a street. Do you notice how all that your eye picks out is restaurants? There's a saying in India that when a pickpocket meets a saint, the pickpocket only sees the saint's pockets. That 
this, these habits of mind of wanting and resisting unpleasant experience really distort what we see. And it, it gets very, very subtle. And until we begin to notice this pattern in itself, we continue looking for peace in the wrong place, in the wrong way, and really don't understand why things seem so confusing. This is from a, an Indian wise man, the Nisargadatta Maharaj. He says, we miss the real by lack of attention and create the unreal by excess of imagination. So you recre- we miss the real by lack of attention and create the unreal by excess of imagination. What we're trying to do with our simple practice of being present is reverse that. To pay attention to what is real and learn to recognize imagination as imagination. Imagination's fine if we know it's imagination. If we think it's the truth, we're in big trouble. And a lot of the time, that's what we're doing. Just a simple example. It just came to mind from years ago. Uh, Joseph was telling me, Joseph Golson, he was teaching a retreat, and the man came in to talk to him and said, oh, I'm so tense, I'm just so uptight and no good in my life. I'm just so striving and I just can't conduct my life in any kind of way. My attitude in business is just off. I'm really a horrible human being. Joseph said, what's the experience? He goes, well, I have this tension in my jaw and I can see from this tension that the way I relate to life is really striving and I'm never in the present moment and the way I conduct it. So Joseph said, yes, but what's your experience right now? He said, well, I have this tension in my jaw and I'm so bad. And and this went on and back and forth until finally the man, oh, you mean it's just tension in my jaw. That was the real tension in the jaw. And all the rest, there might be, true, there might be some striving in the way he relates to life. There might be some things that the tension in the jaw can point to, that one can associate with it. But in the moment, the actual, the real experience is simply tension. And all the rest of that association in this moment is imagination. And so much of the time, we are living in the imagination and not really noticing or giving credence to the actual experience. It's kind of like a little bit away from what's actually going on. And so we can get so lost or caught up in these habits or in torments of the mind they call sometimes, or I like to call them disturbances of the heart. When we're lost and really gripped by craving or anger or aversion or just this total, you know, dullness of confusion, it's really hard. It's really unpleasant. It's a lot of suffering. And we really struggle with that. What we forget in the struggle is how to notice that Again, even in that, there's a potential to touch peace and contentment. An analogy that's used a lot in this 
in the way that we lose sight of the radiant nature of our hearts, of our mind, that never fades or goes away, but we just don't know how to notice it. The, the analogy that's given a lot is to think of the sun as the radiant, pure nature of mind, of consciousness, of heart. And all kinds, sometimes it's really clear. A lot of times it's covered with clouds. Or there's little, sometimes the clouds are little wispy clouds and they don't bother you too much. Sometimes they're dark storm clouds and you can get really involved in resisting them or fighting them or wishing they'd go away. And we can get so involved in the clouds that we completely forget to notice a, that the sun never went anywhere. It's untouched by the clouds. And even though it might not be shining so clear, the evidence of it in that everything is still radiating the light of the sun is always here when the sun is out. And we can forget that because we get so busy in fighting and involved with the clouds. So yes, clouds are clouds. We need to know them, understand what they are, not pretend they're not there. They can still pack a punch when you're flying through them, even though you can never really find them. You know how it is when you fly through clouds? You never really get to the clouds somehow, but the plane's really going up and down, you know, something's going on. It's sort of like that. You can't deny it, but it doesn't have much solidity, whether it's, you know, a, a strong emotion, a pain in the body. It's here, but it also goes away. And the sun, the radiance of our nature never leaves. So that's just an analogy, you know, not exactly accurate, but just to help us remember we don't have to stay lost in these patterns. We can wake up. And hopefully that's what mindfulness, this attentive awareness without discrimination, without judgment, hopefully that's what mindfulness can help us do, to, to really learn for ourselves that we don't have to react to situations always with fear or desire or falling asleep. That there is another possibility altogether. It's quite radical because it's so obvious. And it's that we can simply be with things just as they are knowing it clearly, accepting it without judgment, because it's what is in this moment and you can't change this moment anyway. We're not talking about a life of passivity or not taking action, but in this exact moment of really being with what is, with a real openness of heart and mind and a real fullness of attention without looking for something better. As simple and obvious as it might sound, as I'm sure most of you have seen today, it's not easy. Our deep sense that unpleasant cannot be born and separation from the pleasant cannot be born is so deep that just to be with what is can seem excruciatingly difficult. Yet this has the power to transform our lives in unimaginable ways. It continues to amaze me how something so simple 
as being with the breath, being with sensations, just sitting and walking and being with whatever arises moment after moment can powerfully and deeply transform our understanding of ourselves and through that, our relationship to all aspects of our life. Because once we stop fighting what is and allow our attention to be fully with it, our heart to be fully with it, first there's the opportunity to really know what's happening for a change because we're not so involved in our ideas of how to change it. And in the knowing what's happening, there's the potential to begin to recognize something other that's always here, the radiance. We can always notice it, but when we're so busy fighting or looking for something better, we never stop to notice it. We never stop to recognize. Really, these habits of craving and pushing away are... uh, It's almost like, you know, if someone was making all this up, they couldn't have thought of a better way to keep us running around in circles and not seeing what's so obvious. That's one of the things the the Buddha said that would drive you mad if you tried to think about it, is the first beginning of things. Because I used to wonder, why is it like this? Why is there, you know, and it really does make you crazy. So he would say, look, I'm only teaching you I know a lot more than I'm teaching you, but what I'm teaching you is all you need for peace and freedom from suffering and confusion. And basically, he would say, just shut up and do it <laughs> and quit asking all these questions. That works in Asia. It doesn't work here. <coughs> anyway, I think one of the reasons that All of retreat is so hard, but especially in the beginning and especially if you're new, because just beginning to cultivate mindfulness, simple awareness of what is, without, you know, letting the mind just run where it will, just be with the breath, just be with whichever sensation comes up, just be with whichever sound comes up, without choosing so much, it runs counter to all this ingrained habit of avoid the unpleasant and be with the pleasant. We're opening to a field of choiceless awareness, equal interest in whatever arises. And you know how it is when we have a strong habit and you begin to try to break it? It's almost like it rears up and you know does anything to sort of pull you back into the old way of doing things, you know. Uh, and it's sort of like that. So I, I think it's as if things get magnified, difficulties get magnified. When you go home and you think about, what was that all about? You know, I was in such a snit because, you know, I only got one piece of cake or I wanted oranges and they were bananas or, you know, something. You'll go home and you go, I just, I don't understand what that was all about. But in the middle of the experience, the suffering is intense. And I'm not making fun of it, it's really so. The habits of craving and aversion are really, really strong. And what's more is we really believe that that's the way things are. And that makes it much harder to see through them. It's said that when the Buddha first uh, kind of was, came to his first deep and full enlightenment, when he first came out of it, um, he could 
one of the powers of a Buddha, it's said, is that he can survey the world with his Buddha eye and see what all the people are doing and what's happening with them. And what he saw, and this is what awakened his deep compassion, it said, he saw that everybody, no matter who or what their conditions, what our conditions are, everybody only wants to be happy. And in our confusion, in our wrong assumptions, and are not questioning of those assumptions of who we are, of what is true. In wanting to be happy, he said, most everybody is continuing to do just the things that bring themselves more suffering. Fully convinced that what they're doing is going to bring them happiness. And seeing this is what aroused his deep compassion, you know, and brought him out to teach. I think a lot this energy of wanting, the wanting mind, is what engenders this confusion about what will bring us happy, happiness. Craving, wanting blinds us. Notice it. Should it come up tonight or any time tomorrow, if you happen to suddenly notice you're feeling a little crazed, tune in and see. There might be something you want. It doesn't matter what it is. You know, if you want, suddenly you decide, if I just had one more piece of foam rubber, then I wouldn't have any pain in the sittings. And just the mind just gets obsessed. What else do you see? What else can you think of? You know, it's just nothing counts until you can get in the back there and go through looking for the foam rubber. Or if you're hungry and just wanting to get to lunch and you're the late on the line, how do you feel about the people in line ahead of you? You know, are you filled with the warmth of, you know, sympathetic joy? I'm so glad they're getting to take as much food as they want and heaping it on their plates. Yeah, you know, it's the craving, the need to get with what we want blinds us to everything else. We think that contentment will come when we get to the line and get the food on our plate. And so in standing in the line, we're completely blind to the fact that contentment is accessible right here and now. If you can notice the craving and just tune in to standing. It's so often I'm just standing, okay, they're standing. There's craving, there's thinking, and then suddenly you'll just notice something completely outside of this little scenario. Perhaps a, a person who seems really beautiful to you walks past and she says, ah, oh, what a nice looking person. Just a little sense of joy that is possible because we took, came back from trying to jump ahead to the table and just landed here right now. They say that um, there's two different ways that ignorance or blindness really, the blindness of craving operates in our experience. One thing it does is when craving is present, really this, I don't mean just you're hungry and you need to eat, I mean this lusting after whatever it is. You can't and don't appreciate what's here now. And that's where we're blind to the truth, we're blind to peace. It also can function, blindness, as it doesn't let us see or recognize what's here and appreciate it. And it also can so distort our perception that we see what isn't there. Have you ever really wanted something so much that your mind creates it, even though it's not there at all? 
So um, I'll tell this story. A friend of mine and I, we were teaching in uh, the desert in California a couple of years ago. And it was a beautiful afternoon. We were sitting outside. It was warm, talking to some friends. And one of them mentioned that they'd just been down the road somewhere and had a really good milkshake. And it was a hot afternoon. And somehow that just went into us and really strong desire, craving arose. I really want to have a milkshake. And now, and, and it was really instantaneous. And I, I was caught in it, so I didn't really notice this till later. We, I couldn't join the conversation with the friends. The, the, my, my friend I was teaching with, we looked at each other and kind of said, let's go, you know. And you could tell we just pulled back from the conversation, started going, yes, no, yes, no, until they left, ran to the car, and got in it to go get this milkshake. It, Craving leads you to do things that lack judgment also, because we only had like 15 minutes till one of us had to be at the next sitting. So we went racing down to this place. It had closed 10 minutes earlier, turned around, and did we come back? No, because craving really had a grip and kept going way down, like miles down the road in the other direction, just looking on either side for any you know, kind of Baskin-Robbins or something that would, that would have milkshakes. And I was driving, and he was reading, and he looked over, and we'd both been down this road umpteen times. I mean, we knew what was on this road. And he looks over and goes, look, there it is, yogurt cafe, quick, go in there. And I went, I looked, and it said, I said, that says urgent care. It's a hospital. This is true. It's good when something like that happens, you know. We were quite chastened. We said, well, I guess desire was driving this car. We turned around and went back. That's the blinding quality of desire, of craving, when it's not seen. And what's kind of interesting, is one word for it, is how often it's working in this way. And then we wonder... How come we're not happy? We wonder why we feel disconnected. How come I can't find peace? This is from the Tao Te Ching. The Tao, like another word for truth or dharma, never does anything, yet through it all things are done. If men and women could center themselves in it, the whole world would be transformed by itself in natural rhythms. People would be content with their simple everyday lives in harmony and free of desire. When there is no desire, all things are at peace. When there is no desire, all things are at peace. That's always available to us, just in a moment, that we're not blinded by desire or by aversion. We're not trying to change things. Truth reveals itself by itself in just a moment that things are at peace. And the natural expression, it seems, of understanding 
of recognizing our truth is compassion. That's why the two wings of the Buddha's teaching are great wisdom and great compassion. I love the way Thich Nhat Hanh, the the Vietnamese Zen master, peace activist, speaks about, or he has such simple examples of how to show how compassion is just the natural outcome of understanding. So he talks about this one example of a small boy and his sister, younger sister, and she's really cranky and whining and driving him crazy. And as brothers and sisters do, he's really annoyed with her and arguing back, and they're really starting to get into it. And he's really aggravated. And then he learns, his mother tells him, that the sister is really sick. She has a high fever. She explains the kind of pain that that the sister is in in a way that he can understand. And as soon as he understands, oh, that's what she feels like. Of course, that's why she's cranky. Without having to do something, a natural compassion, which is an understanding of the pain and an empathy that it's okay, an acceptance of it, arises. And it's the same with us. And it can be the same with us towards ourselves, not just towards others. As the Dalai Lama says, you know, that our truest expression as human beings is the expression of compassion. Arising out of our truest being, that of contentment, that of peace. You can certainly see for yourself in a retreat like this, in our lives too, but the retreats are really good microcosm, (coughs) there's ample opportunity to begin to open towards yourself with compassion. What goes on here, just in talking to people today, what goes on here is often really difficult. There's a lot of physical pain. There's a lot of deep emotional pain. There's the pain that comes up for everyone of the emotions of what the the Buddha called the five hindrances that we've mentioned in some of the groups that Almost nobody escapes going through these on a retreat or in our lives, but there's sleepiness or sloth and torpor, which we love that word, restlessness of mind and of body, the mind just spinning and spinning, the body just wanting to jump out of your skin. There's desire that just outrageous, you know, when you're sitting and you want this and you want that and you need a new car and you want a new job and you're changing your relationship and you're going through everything in your life that you want and suddenly, oh, Just recognizing it as desire is very helpful. And the flip one of aversion, which often can come about in retreat where you just, you hate the person next to you, you hate the food, you hate how the bulletin board looks, you hate how the hall's set up, you hate how the bell sounds, you know, it just goes on and on until you finally, oh, I think it's simply the emotion of aversion arising in my experience, you know, after we've projected it out onto every single sense object that comes our way. And doubt which obviously would tend to come up with any or all of these. These are very common emotional, energetic experiences. Just about everybody goes through them to some extent on retreat, and they can seem really magnified, really blown up, because back to the quality of mindfulness, we're not trying to hide them. We're not distracting ourselves from them. We're not jumping up and going for a drive as soon as we feel restless, hopefully. We're not 
you know, going out and satisfying every desire, or at least, you know, going down to the convenience store to satisfy something. You know, we're sitting here, we're walking here, and we're noticing it. And it's really difficult. It's painful. And mostly we're not used to being with this kind of difficulty, this kind of pain. And it's funny because so often the response to our situation is not one of compassion. You know, it's either one of, there's something really wrong with me, I'm doing this wrong, you know, you can never do anything right, and here you are sleepy, you're useless. Or it's the reverse, you know, this whole place is stupid, this whole meditation is ridiculous, I don't know, whatever made me come, the person, the friend who told me about this is in big trouble. (laughs) One way or the other. Does it ever occur to us to go, yeah, this is really painful, this is really hard, and I'm really working to open to it, to soften to it, but sometimes that's just not possible. To really begin to bring in a compassion. The compassion can begin from the understanding that yes, this is part of life, this happens to everybody, that yes, part of why it's so difficult is that I think it shouldn't be happening, and I'm learning how to be, how to relate in a different way. And I'm learning, so right now it's hard. And to really bring in some softness to ourselves, to really bring in some kindness. Thich Nhat Hanh, I was just reading in a book, gives a little exercise that you could try later to just get the feeling of compassion, of just touching your one hand with your other. And often we just do it, you know. But to do it with a real feeling of compassion, touch your left hand with your right hand, really feeling and a loving, kind compassion towards your left hand from your right hand. And you see that it works both ways, because both hands feel touched with compassion. And that we can touch all aspects of ourselves, all aspects of our body, of our emotions, of our life, in the same gentle, compassionate way, if we'd only remember to do it. And mindfulness is really this compassionate touching of whatever aspect of life is presenting itself right now. Whether it's the breath, whether it's sleepiness, whether it's sadness, whether it's boredom, whether it's joy, doesn't matter what. Learning how to touch whatever is arising with mindfulness. I like to think of mindfulness as affectionate curiosity. It's just whatever comes up, oh, okay, what are you about? What's this about right now? And not choosing, this one I'll pay attention to, this one out the window, because it doesn't work anyway. So as we learn to touch ourselves, our experience, with this compassionate mindfulness, we don't have to do a lot else. All by itself, this mindfulness that doesn't discriminate begins to broaden our experience of life, to balance our perception of who we are and what's going on in a really amazing way. And you find that sometimes it might seem that what we're talking about is just opening to the difficult, open to the hindrances, to the pain, because that's what many of us are so versed at shutting out. But with the 
balancing perspective of mindfulness with the opening to whatever's happening, begin to find that we're also opening to what is beautiful, to, to what is very warm, warming in our heart, that actually we begin to open without even realizing it to inner contentment, to peace. Because it's not somewhere else we have to look for. We just have to let down our blinders and open up to what's here. And what's interesting is um, in this broadening of our perspective, we begin to notice that little aspects of peace, of contentment, of joy are always available and in a much more simple way a much more so-called mundane way than we might have expected when we were looking for whatever we were looking for, the big bliss trip or whatever. This is again from Thich Nhat Hanh speaking of how he, he works with this consciously when drowning in suffering, when really caught in difficulty, to consciously balance the perspective, the perception, by noticing something that's happening right now that's beautiful, that's peaceful. He says, most of us ask the question, what is wrong? But we forget to ask, what is right? There are many things that are not wrong. During the war, he's talking about the war in Vietnam, we were so busy helping the wounded that we sometimes forgot to smell the flowers. Night has a very pleasant smell, especially in the country. But we would forget to pay attention to the smells of mint, coriander, thyme, and sage. I would mention these to the social workers and peace workers so they would be in touch with them. It's kind of sometimes hard to imagine in the midst of, probably to most of us, unbelievable horror to actively stop and say, okay, smell the coriander that's growing right here and that that's a really important aspect of being able to be centered and open and present with unbearable suffering. And that even in that unbearable suffering, there is a real peace that's possible. It doesn't have to be the middle of a war. Anytime, here on retreat, experiment, when you're just not just as soon as something a little unpleasant comes along, that's not what I'm talking about, but when you're really feeling caught up, tight, overwhelmed, and that happens to all of us, don't think you just have to grit it out. Deliberately soften, open your heart, open your perspective. I used to go in the middle of a long retreat, I was on the second floor, and I hardly ever went outside, but I used to just go stand on the fire escape and look at the tree at the end for just four or five minutes. It was summer when I was really tight and caught up. And that was enough. Just letting in the beauty of nature would bring such a a spaciousness and again a receptivity to my heart. I could again be with whatever was going on. Look at the sky. Just take a, a quiet breath. Whatever touches joy, whatever touches peace for you, and there's something almost always available here and now. It doesn't have to be so fantastic. So we can do that consciously, but it also begins to happen quite naturally 
as we continue to work with mindful awareness because mindfulness includes everything and doesn't just choose one or the other. What we begin to see is what was supposedly neutral or mundane can put us in touch with so much joy or contentment or appreciation. I just, I read it somewhere. I just read it, I read in a newspaper, but now I can't find it. Oh, here it is. There's an article about a a young 21-year-old woman who was born with cystic fibrosis, which you know completely clogs up your lungs and you usually don't live very long. And she just had a, a partial lung transplant from each of her parents so that she could keep living. And she was saying, it's so nice to be able to breathe like a normal person. She said, I love air. It's so wonderful. Breathing is the most wonderful feeling I could ever imagine. I thought, gosh, you know, how many breaths have I been really present with? Quite a lot in 20 years. How often have I really appreciated with that depth the miracle of breathing? It's wonderful, you know. There's so much in our life that when we simply notice it, is that wonderful? And it's so easy to lose sight of that, to take it for granted. You know, again, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about how when we have a painful toothache and it stops, ah, it's so wonderful. How much of the time do we not have a toothache? Do we ever notice, wow, my teeth feel really great. (laughs) There's a lot that's available to us. If we can come out of our tunnel vision, you know, of just going away from what's unpleasant or towards the pleasant. When we get in touch with our eyes, our heart, our breathing, and our non-toothache, and really enjoy them, we see that the conditions for peace and happiness are already present. When we walk mindfully and touch the earth with our feet, when we drink tea with friends and touch the tea and our friendship, we get healed and we can bring this healing to society. The more we have suffered in the past, the stronger a healer we can become. We can learn to transform our suffering into the kind of insight that will help our friends and society. It's really possible, and it doesn't take all kinds of amazing circumstances. Everything that we need to awaken is right here and right now in this moment. There's nowhere else we need to go. We don't have to wait for some better experience to present itself so that then we can pay attention. You know, a lot of times we either think, I have to be in a better, more spacious place and then I can really explore. Or we think, things are nice. Well, if what happens to me is I have to start suffering more to give me an oomph, you know, to give me a little push because things are nice enough. So who cares? It's good enough. 
That was one wonderful thing about the Buddha. It was never good enough until he really knew in his heart what was true in a way that's unshakable so that the inner contentment that's always accessible was really always accessible to him. And that's possible for us. At least we can touch it in moments and recognize that it isn't going anywhere else. We just lose sight of it. We just forget that it's possible here and now. And whatever situation's presenting itself is an opportunity for affectionate curiosity. Whatever situation is coming up right now is the gateway to inner contentment. Your knee pain is good enough. Sleepiness, irritability, sadness, joy is good enough. We never have to wait for something else to begin to open with loving attention to what's happening right now. One teacher said, we can't love anything till we love and appreciate what is present in each moment. So rather than trying to create ourselves into a different, better person, can we just open to love and appreciate only this one moment? That's all. Don't worry about all the next moments. Never mind the last moments. Can we just practice a little bit loving and appreciating what's present in this moment just as it is and recognizing it for what it is and that's the power of mindfulness. I just want to close with, it's a paraphrase of one of my favorite quotations from Ajahn Sumedho speaking about this. He's a, an American who's been a Buddhist monk in the Thai tradition for 20 or 25 years, something like that. He has a monastery in England. He says something to the effect that you don't have to experience all sorts of extreme pain and difficulty in order to overcome suffering. The pain of your ordinary life is enough to be enlightened. And Oyen from Thich Nhat Hanh. Practicing Buddhism is a clever way to enjoy life. (laughs) Happiness is available. Please help yourself. I don't mean it's simple, but it's just to open ourselves to another possibility. So let's just sit quietly for a moment or two together, please. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.